Hi, this is Craig, and welcome to this episode of Leaders with Craig Miller. This is the podcast where we speak with leaders and discuss real-life challenges and practices to becoming more effective at work and in life. In today's episode, I speak with Ben Ball. Ben is the co-founder and managing director of Francisco Partners, a private equity firm focusing on technology companies. This is a firm that is based in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I really enjoyed speaking with Ben and talking about his unique perspective on our theme, which is how to choose the right CEO. Ben has spent over 20 years investing in other firms and has learned quite a bit about what he considers to be the most important asset, and that is the quality of a CEO and knowing how to choose the right CEO. Certainly hope you enjoy this episode. So Ben, welcome. Welcome to the podcast and thank you very much for being here. Uh, Craig, it's my pleasure. Exciting to be here with you this morning. I, uh, I want to do a full disclosure before we learn a little bit about who's Ben and, and just share that uh, Ben is actually someone very special to me. Ben and I grew up on the same street in Moraga, California in the 1970s, and uh, it's great to see you again. Uh, Craig, uh, great to see you. Seeing you this morning R- reminds me of uh, my run down Natalie Drive to your house where I, I raided the Miller family licorice jar, which was... Uh, which is a highlight, still a very fond memory uh, for me all these years later. And for me, and for me. So I think that the best place to start always is just to understand a little bit more about who is Ben Ball. And so please share with us a little bit more about you so that we can create some context for our conversation. Yeah, uh, so Craig, uh, quickly, brief snapshot uh, on me. Uh, I am uh, married 30 years, five children, uh, four boys, uh, all of whom are out of the house, uh, and a teenage daughter who's uh, my last, uh, who's a senior in high school uh, in the uh, in the U.S. Uh, all of my children and the oldest uh, were highly competitive tennis players, and the oldest three all played collegiate tennis. So. Between my career, I had a secondary career, which was moving children, logistics to get them to and from tennis tournaments. So kind of a funny little uh, story. Uh, but then professionally, uh, I'm uh, a co-founder of Francisco Partners. We're a private equity investment firm. Started that in 1999. So it's been 20 plus years now at, at Francisco Partners, which has uh, been uh, a lot of fun, a lot, uh, a lot of change. And we can yeah, get into some of that. Prior to that, I'd I started uh, my career in the investing industry in 1993 um, with a firm uh, in New York City and started my professional career as a management consultant uh, at Bain & Company uh, doing just general uh, strategy uh, studies uh, for various uh, uh, firms, uh, pretty much global uh, global firms, Fortune 500, uh, mostly centered in the U.S. Uh, in terms of the strategies that we worked on. Let's talk about private equity for a second. So talk a little bit about how you made your way to Palo Alto, to the Silicon Valley, and certainly a little bit about private equity before we open up the theme of today, which is around how to choose the right CEO. Fascinating theme. But let's let's start with private equity, please. Yeah. And private equity, Craig, for me, oddly enough, starts uh, with the very first strategy uh, project that I did at Bain, which was for Honeywell Bull. And Honeywell Bull uh, was a mainframe uh, computer manufacturer, and they were trying to figure out how do we get independent software vendors to develop software applications that will ride on uh, the Bull uh, operating system, which at that time was a closed proprietary operating system with a small installed base of, of customers. So I got to actually profile Microsoft. 
Um, it was one of the companies I'd interviewed because they had an operating system, obviously, but more importantly, the whole suite of office uh, solutions, so Excel, Word, PowerPoint, and whatnot, were highly successful. And this was the late 80s, um, and Microsoft had just gone public. And so the conclusion for the strategy was, uh, for Bull, pardon me being crass, but you're kind of screwed. You don't have a large enough installed base, and so no software vendor is ever going to waste their time developing code for your platform because they can't sell any software, right? It just isn't isn't big enough, you're not open. And Microsoft is the future, right? So I believed it passionately. So I put my entire first year bonus uh, into Microsoft stock, wow. right? So it was it was kind of the first time I'd, uh, I grew up uh, very, you know, I would say poor, but, you know, lower middle class, uh, both parents, public educators, you know, no disposable income, you know, so the thought of investing was quite foreign, but I, I believe passionately in it. So that my Microsoft uh, public investment, honestly, today still remains my my best uh, investment ever, even <laughs> through you know twenty seven years of private equity investing, uh, both from an IRR and multiple money perspective. So so it started there. I really had a bug for investing, and I loved consulting. I loved the operational aspects of how do we maximize, how do we improve. Um, but I hated consulting because over half of our projects got put on the shelf. You know, we weren't the, the decision makers uh, ultimately, and I always was frustrated when I couldn't convince a client to implement the solution. So private equity then became the perfect match uh, of my passion for investing and, and then my also my passion for optimizing businesses. And it was the ultimate litmus test because if you got the purchase price right and the optimization right, you could make a lot of money, and more importantly, affect a lot of change uh, within uh, a business uh, itself. And so for me, it was just a perfect match of, of what I wanted to do, because I believed enough in the strategies that I was working on and the tools that I had in the toolkit that, that I could be a great partner to management teams to think about how to navigate very competitive markets. And then the private equity, how I got uh, really to, to California and to Francisco Partners was, you know, in the mid-90s, the private equity industry uh, had a ton of capital pouring in. Um, there were more and more investment banks intermediating deals. So kind of the broker was stepping in, which meant that the, the buying and selling of assets was far more efficient which tended to mean that IRRs would go down because of that efficiency in the marketplace. And so we felt, uh, my partners and I that, that started the firm felt like if we don't have a differentiated strategy, mm -hmm. we will go out of business. And in, 19, in the late 90s, each of us were kind of the sole private equity guys pursuing technology buyouts for broader, more generalist uh, partnerships. And we just got tired of explaining, okay, what's, what's an integrated circuit to, to our partners? That time, client server technology on the software side was emerging as really the next wave of software computing um, and software applications. And, but it was very difficult for people to understand. I mean, Craig, a funny little anecdote. In 1997, I could not get a bank to loan me money to buy a software business. Wow. Couldn't do it. And the conventional wisdom in 1997 from a bank's perspective is we need to see uh, assets, tangible assets. So they loved semiconductor companies because there was inventory. There were these huge fabs, right? It was PP&E. It, 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 looked, uh, like that, uh, it looked like traditional manufacturing. Yeah. And so when you when the makers went to their credit offers and, and the credit offices said, wait a minute, you mean that the assets of the company and a software company are the people and they get in the elevator and they go down and they go out the door every night and they're gone, right? We can't control it. So 
you know, so the concept of, of free cash flow that, uh, you know, fast forward to today, where every bank wants more and more uh, software assets because of the recurring nature of the business model and, and the beautiful kind of cash on cash returns that, that, that come out of them. So, 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 so anyway, I, I digress this second. No, no. So, so great. And so the so, private, so our view was we had to have a differentiated strategy and technology was that strategy because there was a lot of very smart people um, in the mainstream private equity business. And we like to think we're smart enough guys, but it's pretty easy when there's no one else doing it. Right? Right. It's, I'm fairly confident that I'm smarter than no one. Right. So <laughs> if, if, if the bar is that low and in, and in 1999, honestly, Craig, that, that was the bar because each of us were the, really, we had competed with, with each other uh, at different, uh, I was at TA associates at the time and uh, two of my partners were at Texas Pacific group. Um, and we said, Hey, let's, uh, let's collude rather than compete. And, uh, and that was been a great strategy. Wow. Sorry. So, no, no, that's great. So, so if people are the asset, so let's transition for a second and talk about why does leadership matter? I mean, that, that again is what most of my work is focused on. It's what this podcast is about. What have you seen over all these years? And, you know, specifically you and I were discussing how to choose the right CEO, but I'm always interested in CEO as the ultimate leader, but what, what's the leadership value place in private equity and what you've learned yeah. over these years? Great, great question, Craig. And because as you think about uh, private equity industry, you know, uh, literally for the first 12 years of our existence as Francisco Partners, there's a bunch of investors. You know, all of us uh, had our passions around various segments uh, of the industry that we go after. And, but we're not operators. None of us uh, have ever operated. We've not been in a line position. So, but we've seen a lot through the portfolio company. So we have a lot of experiences, strategies, what works, what doesn't work, how to integrate two different cultures, two different businesses, how to, how to uh, crystallize synergies, all of that type of, of stuff. Uh, but if you think about our business, the single biggest lever that we can pull on to inflect change within a business, it's the CEO. And so you've got to have the right uh, CEO. And what we realized, we did a deep analysis around 2012, 2013, where we went back and looked at our performance, uh, investment performance. And it showed that when we got the CEO right out of the gate, either we partnered with the right CEO or we had recruited in the right CEO to start with us at that point in time, we found that we had an, a full multiple of money better returns when we got the CEO wrong. And on one hand, it was, yeah, kind of, yeah, that, that, that sort of makes sense. But when you actually see pen to paper and the analysis and the data behind it, that's so dramatic that we then started to look at, okay, what, what are we getting wrong? What are we missing? You know, what, what, why have we failed um, uh, the number of times that we had, which wasn't that many, but if you eliminate any, right? And I'm not saying that we've been able to uh, fully uh, eliminate it, but uh, that became a really uh, strong concerted effort around uh, leadership. Um, and it wasn't just like CEO leadership, it was kind of CEO and then direct reports too, because those tend to be the people that have the most exposure at, at the board level, which is what, you know, where we would see the most. So, okay. So let's, so let's unpack for a second what the right C-suite person is what have you learned over all these because you say it's getting it right what yeah. does the, what are those attributes yeah so after that craig you know we did uh, there's a professor at columbia university professor mortensen and he had done a ton of, of research uh, that we started to follow 
And it was fascinating because he uh, partnered with uh, a consulting firm called GH Smart. And GH Smart, uh, for your listeners, if they, if they don't know him, uh, the founders wrote a great book called Who, which really gets at the heart of who should you be hiring. And sorry, what I remember from yeah. reading that at least one of the books from Smart was this incredible concept that A players will stay because there are other A players and B players attract C players to, to make them look better, yes. which of course make the A players run away immediately. So you need to hire A players and keep your A players. It made perfect sense. But again, when I read it, I was like, oh, I hadn't thought about it like that. Yeah. Well, so what I found, uh, Craig, and I'll keep it personal to me so that they don't indict uh, anybody other than myself. <laughs> but when I hired a CEO or anybody uh, uh, on that executive team, um, I, I made up my mind within the first 90 seconds of, of meeting that individual, you know, based on resume, based on a little bit of background that I may have known. 90 seconds, I've made a decision. And then I'm looking for ways to validate that, uh, that decision. And if you talk about a recipe for disaster, you know, what do I tend to doing? I tend to like you guys that are type A personalities, that they've got a great backstory, that they, they had to self-finance their way through college because I did. And, you know, so you, you talk about a lack of diversity in thinking and really a lack of qualification around what are you hiring for and what is the specific need uh, that you should be hiring for. So this is kind of my first big epiphany and our firm's first uh, epiphany is you've got to go against type, right? So that, uh, really lesson learned number one, go against type. We then looked at Mortensen's research and he had taken a bunch of interviews and personality traits of CEOs prior to starting a job at a private equity uh, investment. And so it was the first research that had ever been done that actually gathered data pre-investment. Uh, prior to that, uh, if, if any of your listeners ever read Jim Collins, Good to Great, a very famous book. Um, but Jim would take ex-post data. The company succeeded, great outcome, and then concluded, therefore, the managers must be good leaders. They must be good executives. Exactly. Um, and isn't necessarily causal, right? Uh, because you don't know what were they like uh, before going into the situation uh, and what was the impact. And so uh, Mortensen's research says, hey, you know what? A great team player is nice, but that's not what is definitively drives uh, a great outcome. And that to me was baffling, you know, because I've been a team sport kid all my life. Craig and I actually played Little League Baseball that's together. Right. And that's, uh, that's where a lot of our friendship uh, really started was on the baseball field. And we became great friends. We were, I trusted Craig, right? You know, so all of these things, which I had inherently learned and still believe, um, it said, hey, that isn't the single best, biggest driver of outcome and performance. It was actually efficiency or being effective and commitment, you know, so those two uh, character traits in particular were um, a higher predictor of a great outcome than being a team player. Um, and, and the other one, which was fascinating, even higher than being ethical, which was which was very hard for me to, to digest. Yeah, um, which was was fascinating. And again, this is what the research says. Right. And so, you know, research, any research is, is like anything in, in business. It is a tool that you then have to interpret, you have to filter, and then you have to apply. But for me, this was a really big epiphany because it said, I've got to focus more on effective 
results, effectiveness, commitment, leadership, and those types of things. So, so let me let me just dig a little bit. So, effectiveness, I think. I can see how you would interview someone and have them talk and give proof of their effectiveness. Commitment? How do you learn if someone's committed or not? Yeah. So let me go um, to Metaswitch. Metaswitch, uh, for your UK listeners, uh, is a telecom software uh, company uh, headquartered uh, in Einfeld, uh, England. So just right on the periphery of, of London. And uh, this is a company we loved. Uh, they had really made uh, the uh, the telecommunications infrastructure uh, started on a digital framework. Uh, you know, uh, well, actually, it started on analog, but that was pre my time. It was digital network, and it moved to an internet protocol architecture. And Metaswitch was making a lot of the software that allowed uh, carriers to make that transition from a traditional uh, a TDM network to an IP architecture. So these are incredibly smart guys. All right, they're all engineers. Um, they're coming out of Oxford and Cambridge uh, primarily. And so, you know, the arrogant of the arrogant. <laughs> and, and then even within the software uh, universe, uh, telecom software guys are, they're really bright. Uh, they're really capable. Um, and we partnered with the original founder uh, and the CEO at the time uh, were both engineers. And they just could not wrap their minds around the fact that, any, that a sales guy could make as much money as an engineer. Just was anathema to them. They're like, those guys aren't smart. It just it just doesn't work. And so I remember saying, Ian, you know, you want that sales guy to make more money than you because he doesn't have anywhere near the equity in the company that you do. So, so him being the sales guy being the most highly compensated on an annual cash basis is a recipe for success. And it was funny, Chris. This kind of epiphany for him went off for a moment, like, wait a minute, you know, here's a guy that can do great math, but he was losing the math in terms of annual, annual compensation versus equity. You know, so I tell a lot of your listeners, fight, fight, fight for as much equity, those options, RSUs, um, value yourself uh, because you are an extraordinarily valuable asset and you can't create equity value without you. So make sure you, you get your due compensation. So that, that, that plug. So effectiveness. So back to that, we then said we need a new CEO um, because the guy running the, uh, the company was just tired, wanted to go on and do other things. And the, the first guy that I interviewed, Craig, phenomenal resume. Number two guy at Broadcom, uh, Broadcom, one of the most successful uh, CMOS uh, semiconductor companies uh, in the communications uh, chips. You know, so highly relevant. Broadcom had just been a stellar performer. His, you know, his re- resume just looked like right out of central casting, right? So I go into this interview loving this guy. But uh, with the background and what we have been trying to do, you know, the GH Smart um, and, uh, and BSG Associates is another company that we actually use to help us in an interviewing process. I said, okay, I'm just, I'm going deep, right? And I'm, I'm not taking the first response as the acceptable response because his first response was, well, look at the gross margins and look at the contribution margin of everything that I was responsible for. And at a first, at a high level, yes, he did all, he was, that that was him. But I said, okay, well, tell me about what did you do? Tell me what you did. How did you probe? What what drove uh, that that performance over that period of time? And the answers were fine, but not, it didn't demonstrate a deep knowledge of, of exactly what took place. 
And so we asked him for some references, um, just uh, both peers of his, and he was a pretty senior guy, so he couldn't get the CEO because he was one step. He was actually next in line at Broadcom. And so he gave us uh, a couple of references, but also gave us the guys that worked for him. And Martin Lund happened to be the guy that worked for him. So as I'm interviewing Martin about his boss, effectively, I'm like, Martin, tell me about, you know, what did you guys do? Well, Martin then goes, this is exactly what we this is exactly what we did and this is why it matters to me and this is how yeah craig he could map out every action every strategy every decision that was made over a three-year period of time where they actually doubled contribution margin um uh, relative to this business line and so as as martin is describing this i'm going back to my notes saying okay what is it exactly that we need and everything that we're describing that we need is Martin. <laughs> so, so long story short, uh, we hired Martin Lund, uh, okay. who was, uh, you know, a wonderful Danish fellow. Uh, he had great international experience, uh, and we needed him in the U S because most of our customers were in the U S. So, so it just ended up becoming, uh, a kind of the perfect, uh, fit, uh, um, in terms of, of what we needed. It's really helpful. And, and, and I would say it's interesting because a lot of the work that I do comes from one of my teachers. His name is Bob Dunham. And the mm-hmm. idea is that he calls it the anatomy of action. And what he looks at is a five building from the bottom up. If what we're trying to, to create are results always, and we know results come from action, what he discovered in looking at this is that people tend to try and do more of the same action to get a different result. Mm-hmm. And what's missing is what he calls an embodied commitment, a real commitment. And what he saw mostly in organizations was what he calls compliance. So I'm going to do it because someone yeah. told, told me to do it, as opposed to I'm so committed that I'll figure this out and create the right actions to drive those results. And as he continued to explore the question, so where does commitment come from in human beings? What he discovered is people actually commit when it takes care of what they care about. So if you're looking for real commitment, what we're often looking for is what matters, what really matters to you, whether I'm talking personally or as the CEO of a business, because that's where you're going to actually commit. And if you want people to follow you, which is what leaders need all the time, listening to what they care about, where their commitment's going to come from. And it's often a missing. So it's, I mean, super interesting that this is what the research shows, because I think um, in many ways, it's a lot of the work that I'm doing is helping leaders learn not only how to vision, but how do you get the commitment of other people to come with you? Yeah. As, uh, Craig, so we'll go a little bit deeper. So just as you mentioned that, so Martin Law, new guy, um, at, at a, literally a cultish type uh, culture uh, at Metaswitch, you know, what does he do to build that commitment? They're already highly committed, but, you know, engineers you know, they oftentimes want to go off and and do their own little thing, or how do they contribute, you know, to either a new feature or something completely uh, off spec. Uh, So Martin came up with a hackathon. And he said, great, you know, uh, uh, once a quarter, we're going to have a hackathon. Everybody show up, we're going to go as long as we possibly can. All the food is on me. Nice. Uh, we later said, Martin doesn't need to be on you. It's a great idea. It's going to be on the company, right? So, but he said, I'm, you know, this was his commitment, Craig, to the engineers. And his way of breaking in uh, to that culture was, you guys go do the hackathon. And any feature that passes the scrutiny of this firm is ranked the best idea coming out of the hackathon 
we're going to commercialize it. Beautiful. Um, and Perfect. so, Perfect. you know, so that then, you know, these guys, Craig, they said all night, literally, they, we broke, we said midnight was the deadline and, you know, 6 a.m. things wrapped up on the first hackathon. But then the level of engagement, uh, because people want the recognition at, at the end of the day. We're all humans. Uh, we like to recognize. And what Martin did well was the public attribution to those people who ended up winning the hackathon um, and also the attribution to everybody that participated. Um, and the other thing I, I love about Martin, you know, fast forward, we, we actually sold MetaSwitch to Microsoft uh, just this past summer because Microsoft Azure wants a cloud native way to go after the 5G uh, marketplace. Uh, and we, we do that perfectly at Met, MetaSwitch. So, so very successful outcome with Martin navigating all of that. You know, but but it shows his level. He got these people to commit. He knew what it was. He would always praise publicly, and whenever he had an issue, you know, because you know he he is a stereotypical Dane, you know, of you know first generation American, but you know Danish parents and just very direct. He would reproach privately. He would go and he'd spend the time one on one with people. It's like, hey, you know, you're not meeting the standard that I need you to be at. And so to your point of A players hire A plus players underneath them because they demand a lot. They don't let them coast. They don't let them get away. And that's exactly what he did. We already had a very talented base, but he even up-leveled the direct reports uh, to the CEO because of the way he, he carried uh, himself and what he demanded. That's great. Let's bring it back to you for a second before we wrap, which is... Uh, I ask my guests each time about their own learning edge. So as a founding partner, as the leader of your own firm, what's what's one example of something in your own leadership that you haven't mastered yet that you're still working on? Yeah, that's, uh, and, and it isn't, uh, this, this may sound like it, it's just timely uh, given a lot of the social unrest, uh, uh, certainly in the States over, over the summer. Um, but, you know, where we have failed, you know, we, we started Francisco Partners, created a very flat culture. Uh, we really are a meritocracy. Uh, economics, even for founders, are, are not set in stone. It's really based on performance and how effective uh, are you. Um, and so that was a wonderful change from what we had experienced at, at, at prior partnerships. Um, but the one thing that we have really failed at uh and are working on is diversity, both uh, uh, ethnic diversity as well as gender diversity. Um, finance is notorious uh, in that uh, you just haven't had uh, a lot of women um, in the industry, very few partners, either at venture capital firms or even fewer at private equity firms. Um, and so that's been a failure. And, and it, it has been something that, uh, that we really shifted to about four years ago and it wasn't, you know, our philosophy at the time, or at least mine, I hid behind it, honestly, was, hey, that's great. You know, it, it, it'll be a focus, but it, it's a focus in the sense that in a jump ball, uh, the female candidate wins. Or in a jump ball, um, the, the ethnic diversity wins. And that really wasn't sufficient, especially when it's coming from uh, a bunch of white guys. Actually, two of my partners are uh, from India, but I, you know, rightly or wrongly, I, I, I include them in that in the technology world because you know the because Indians are highly pervasive uh, in the software and, and certainly in the communications industry where I spend a lot of my time. So, so it hasn't been enough, right? So I would tell you that in the last few years, we've really shifted um, uh, our focus around how do we create a better culture? How do we 
both within our investment firm, and that's where we're looking at uh, initially, uh, as well as then within our portfolio companies uh, to make sure that it's going uh, across the board. You know, so a, a huge push uh, that uh, went out, uh, actually, I, I can't say at end of last year, to say at the board level, so the board of director level, we've got to have women on the boards. Uh, we, we have had some of that, so we're not completely deficient. Um, and then we've got to have uh, an ethnic minority uh, as well uh, on the board. So I think, you know, it's an area that we're, uh, we've got a plan and a strategy in place, but our execution, you know, if I go back to what I said, effectiveness, execution going deep, we've got to be better. I hear the commitment now and, and the failure, it sounds like to me, is just what I believe in, which is awareness brings choice. You just weren't looking at it for many years, and you are now. The irony is, uh, in our very first time, so in the year 2000, when we made a couple of investments, uh, uh, Chris King ran AMI Semiconductor for us, and Chris was a phenomenal executive out of, out of IBM. She did a great job for us, and Joan Herbig uh, ran Accelinet, which was a remote software uh, company uh, that we had. So we had, in our early days, you know, great. You know, we were probably ahead of the curve, right? Yeah. At one point in time, uh, they were two of our first five investments, right? So 40% of our CEOs were, were women. Um, but, but we failed, right? We did not take on. And both of those women created extraordinary returns for us. So great data points as well. So, so as we wrap up, Ben, thanks for, for all of this. I, I ask my guests always a set of questions that I learned from James Lipton, who he learned from Bernard Pivot. Let's let's begin. Ben, what is your favorite word? But my favorite word might be passionate. What is your least favorite word? Mediocrity. What turns you on? What inspires you? For the longest time, early in my career, it re- what really drove me was making Francisco Partners uh, a preeminent uh, investment firm. Uh, and then secondly, and probably even higher than that was uh, making sure I raised uh, wise, kind, and caring children. What turns you off? What turns me off is is people on either extreme that believe that they have all of the answers and that they're smarter than everybody else. What sound or noise do you love? My second son taught himself uh, to play the guitar. And I love the sound of him playing classical gas uh, on an acoustic guitar. Um, just love it. What sound or noise do you hate? You know, I probably dislike the most the sound of my clock alarm that I've had for 30 years. Because <laughs> when that goes off early in the morning, I tend to get up early, but when it goes off early in the morning, it's not a pleasant sound. What is your favorite curse word? <laughs> you know, I try not to swear. I know it's, it's uh, and, and I'm That's sure fair. That, That's you know, fair. some. It, it, Things uh, slip out, but uh, probably my favorite expression is probably "Oh my goodness," which I know that just sounds, that works, Ben. That works. It's just cheesy. But. What what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Craig, my my regret is I always wonder if I would have been a good CEO, and so uh, if I could have done anything else, it would have been to have paid my dues, uh, worked my way up, and been the CEO. Uh, of a software company. Uh, I really like, uh, you know, you always wonder, but that, that is. Makes perfect uh, sense. What yeah. profession would you absolutely not like to participate at? Well, when I was in college, you know, as a political uh, theorist or a government major, for the longest time, I was going to be a lawyer. And having paid lawyers over the years, millions of dollars of fees, 
I, I would, it's, I respect every lawyer that I know, but boy, that is, that's brute force. <laughs> Last question. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have done everything um, that you could with that which I've given you. Nice. Thank you, Ben. Craig, a real pleasure. Love what you're doing. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ben. What I find particularly interesting is how he has taken research throughout these years and learned what is it that makes a great CEO great and how Ben has uh, really whittled that down into two very succinct concepts around effectiveness and commitment, uh, which are certainly things that I work on with my clients every day. So I want to thank Ben again for joining, and I really hope that you enjoyed that episode. I'm Craig Miller, and reminding you that leadership is a performance art, and it's learned and improved through practice. I invite you to keep listening to upcoming episodes, find new ideas, and then go out and practice in your life and work. And as always, if you found this conversation relevant and useful, please share with others. Please also send us your feedback and comments, and thanks for listening.